0: Uh, Welcome. Uh, The next of the anatomy podcasts is on the mouth and the palate. We've had a little bit of a hiatus, and um, we'll continue on to complete the head and neck section over the next uh, few weeks, uh, and then the history uh, will complete over around about another six or seven weeks or so. Now the mouth extends back to the palatoglossal arches, which are also the anterior pillars of the fources. The area in front of the gums and cheek is referred to as the vestibule and inside the teeth is really the mouth cavity proper. Notice we've seen before the parotid duct um, of uh, stenson opening opposite the upper second molar tooth. There may be additional openings of course of the molar glands. (coughs) Many other buccal and labial glands Enter in this region. The nerve supply here is the buccal branch of V3, the mental nerve through the inferior alveolar, and the infraorbital branch of V2. The upper gums are supplied or innervated by the superior alveolar nerves, the greater palatine and nasopalatine, with the lower, the inferior alveolar, the buccal and lingual nerves. The buccal nerve spills over onto the lowest jaw, but usually doesn't innervate the upper gingival margin. <coughs> now, the buccinator forms the muscle layer of the cheek following the line of the teeth, passing deep to the masseter posteriorly, so that it is in effect continuous with the superior constrictor. Of course, this is at the level of the so-called pterygomandibular raphae, one muscle, the buccinator moving forward, and the other, the superior constrictor, moving backwards from a common point of origin. The buccinator lies between the buccopharyngeal fascia, which is outside, and the pharyngobasilar fascia internally, and it's filled, really, this area with fat, the so-called suctorial pad of uh, infants. The molar glands lie external to the buccinator, near the entry of the parotid duct in the way we've defined it. The parotid duct passes above this buccal fat pad, it pierces the buccinator. The median fold of the mucous membrane in the mouth, stretching from the floor of the mouth to the tongue, is the frenulum, which bulges upwards as the sublingual fold and which ends anteriorly as the sublingual papilla. We've considered that in another podcast. On the apex of the papilla is the submandibular duct of Wharton. The sublingual duct is multiple uh, on the summit of the sublingual fold. Now, in examination of the roof is the vaulted palate, the anterior two-thirds of which is the hard or bony palate, and the posterior third of which is the soft palate with the free uvula posteriorly. Behind the incisive fossa, a midline raphae, can sometimes be seen with the mucous membrane over the hard palate thrown into three or four transverse palatal folds. And posterior to the lingual surface of the third molar tooth, the pterygoid hamulus is actually palpable. Now the term fauces is the region between the mouth and the pharynx. That is, it is the part of the pharynx that contains the two palatine tonsils between the palatoglossal and the palatopharyngeal arches. The mouth joins the pharynx at the isthmus of the forces, bounded by the soft palate, the palatoglossal arches, and the dorsum of the tongue. So these are good orientation uh, parameters for us. The palatoglossal arch is part of this region, with the palato-pharyngeal arch really part of the descriptive pharynx. The fibrous tissue of the gums is continuous with the periodontal membrane, which is the bit that attaches the teeth to their sockets. So we've basically got our orientation (coughs) of the mouth. What about the teeth? We don't consider that a lot in our anatomy, but in medicine this is not discussed that much, and yet the anatomists teach the dentists. Um, There is not much anatomical overlap, I think, here. So... Let's go over a few basics for medical graduates. The bulk of the tooth consists of the dentine, which is a hard avascular calcified part, which is penetrated by minute dentinal tubules. The projecting tooth is the crown covered by enamel, the hardest of all animal tissues, with the root, the part held in the jaw, covered by cementum. So therefore the visible or clinical crown is a little less, in a sense, than the anatomical crown. The neck is the junction between the enamel and the cementum at a point where dentine is not exposed. And then inside the dentine is the pulp cavity, which communicates with the exterior via the root canal and the apical foramen of the tooth apex. The cavity is filled with dental pulp, nerves, blood vessels, lymphatics, entering through the foramen pulp is covered by a single layer of tall columnar odontoblasts against the dentine. And the periodontal membrane fixes the cementum to the bony walls of the tooth socket, with collagen fibres passing obliquely from the alveolar bone to the apex. And it's the modified alveolar bone periosteum. And that's that's the radiolucent line that you see um, between the tooth and the bone. To reiterate, the shape of the teeth are functional, incisors bite and cut, canines hold, so they're well developed in carnivores for example, and molars and premolars chew. In clinical dentistry the teeth are numbered 1 to 8, starting from the midline. The teeth are distinguished by roots and crowns, the upper molars have 3 roots, 2 on the convexity and 1 on the concavity of the alveolar margin. The lower molars have two roots, one anterior and one posterior, and all the other teeth have a single root, although sometimes can be bifid, which is commonest in the upper premolar teeth. And the incisor crowns are chisel-shaped chisel with uh, a meet by a sliding overlap, just like a pair of scissors, with the canine crown somewhat pyramidal or conical in shape. The premolars have two cusps, so a lingual and a buckle, So they're called the bicuspids, therefore, and the upper molars have four, and the lower molars five cusps or surfaces on their crowns. Now the nerve supply to the tooth is the nerve supply of the pulp. Uh, Fine nerve filaments can enter some dentinal tubules, with most of the dentine, all of the enamel, and the cementum insensate. The pulp and the periodontal ligament Share a nerve supply, although that's not to the overlying gum. In the upper jaw, the molars are dental branches of the posterior superior alveolar nerve. Um, the anterior buccal root of the first molar is innervated by the middle superior alveolar nerve, uh, as are the two premolars. The canine and incisors innervated by the anterior superior alveolar nerve. And then in the lower jaw, the three molars and the two premolars are innervated by the main inferior alveolar nerve with a terminal incisor branch to the canine and incisors, and there's some degree of central overlap there. Now, that's not that easy, I think, to remember, but it has the clinical relevance, obviously, in dental anaesthesia, which I think a general surgeon can be called upon to do on occasion buccal infiltration allows drilling to be painless, but the palatal aspect has to be infiltrated if you really want to take the tooth out, and that's usually midway between the midline and the gingival margin. In the lower jaw, infiltration is effective for the incisors and for other teeth. You need to perform an inferior alveolar nerve blockade with associated infiltration of the buccal and lingual nerves. For inferior alveolar and lingual nerve blockade, the needle is inserted through the buccinator above the occlusal surface level of the molar and in front of that pterygomandibular raphe, which appears as a ridge in the open mouth just behind the ridge of the mandibular ramus just above the lingula where the inferior alveolar nerve enters the mandibular foramen. For clinical relevance, the attachment of the myelohyoid muscle is below the apices of the teeth so that an apical abscess points into the mouth in general. But in the second and third molars, the apices actually lie below the myelohyoid line and an apical abscess will then point uh, into the neck, into that submental region and submandibular region. Now broadly, in the adult, there are 16 permanent teeth in each jaw, two incisors, one canine, two premolars and three molars. The complete milk dentition consists of 10 teeth in each jaw, two incisors, one canine and two molars. The teeth are formed by budding of the ectoderm, which produces the enamel, evoking a mesodermal reaction, which differentiates into the dentine and the cementum. The mesoderm at the five-week embryo is the primary dental lamina with outer buds growing into the mesoderm, one for each deciduous teeth. And later on, buds grow medially from the dental lamina for each permanent tooth. Now, these epithelial buds are the tooth germs which rem, with remnants of the uh, primary uh, dental lamina occasionally forming cysts and tumours. The growing tooth is sort of wineglass shaped and is called the primary enamel organ, with the cells lining the concavity, the ameloblasts, which are enamel-producing. The mesoderm, differentiated here into the odontoblasts, produces dentine. The mesoderm of this dental papilla persists as the pulp. The ameloblasts on the concavity and the odontoblasts on the convexity then separate, And outside the dentine, cementum is produced in a process which is fairly similar to membranous ossification. The cementum then becomes firmly bound to the dentine. So these are difficult to remember. The normal times of tooth eruption are as deciduous teeth six months of the lower central incisors, seven months the upper central incisors, eight months the upper lateral incisors, nine months the lower lateral incisors. Then about a year, the first molars, 18 months or so, the canines, two years, the second molars. Of the permanent teeth, the first permanent molars appear at six years, the central incisors at seven, the lateral incisors at eight years, the first premolars at nine years, the second premolars at ten years, the canines at eleven years, and the third permanent molars or wisdom teeth at around about 12 years. The lower teeth usually precede its opposite number in the upper jaw. The first permanent molar typically erupts before shedding of any deciduous teeth. The decidua are then replaced and the second permanent premolar then erupts. The order of the replacement is usually first the incisors, central and lateral, then the milk molars which are first and second, and lastly the long-rooted canine. The first of these, the lower central incisors, erupts, as I've said, at about six months. The last, the second milk molars at about two years. The first permanent tooth erupts at about six, as we said, behind the milk dentition, and that's the first molar. So I want to move now on to the palate. The palate, or the roof of the mouth, uh, is made of the palatal process of the maxilla and the horizontal plate of the palatine bone. This is effectively divisible into a mammalian pre The greater palatine foramen lies between this palatine bone and the maxilla with the lesser palatine foramen behind this level, level with the last molar tooth. The mucous membrane here is very strongly adherent with the periosteum. If you have a look at a dog, for example, you'll see that. But as a combined layer, the mucoperiosteum can be readily stripped, and the palate here is then pitted by its attaching sharpie fibres. This mucosa obviously needs to be stable during deglutition. The area is supplied by the greater palatine artery emerging from the greater palatine foramen, and lies lateral to the nerve, and it enters the incisive foramen, passing backwards into the base of the nose. The veins of the region drain back to the pterygoid plexus, with the other veins passing into the pharyngeal plexus. The lymphatics here drain to retropharyngeal and deep cervical lymph nodes, and the nerve supplies the greater palatine as far forward as the incisive foramen, and the anterior palate uh, is innervated via the naso palatine nerves separately now we'll move a little bit into the soft palate which is strictly both part of the mouth and also the pharynx and in the podcast of the pharynx or the bit of the pharynx I'll also re-go over this area again I I do accept that the musculature of the palate is more intimately connected with that of the pharynx but whilst we're on the subject let's cover it and we'll return to it uh, later on in the anatomy of the pharynx when we finish this area Will then go over the tongue. So, firstly, I think the soft palate. The soft palate is a muscular structure fusing at the side walls of the pharynx, and which closes off the nasopharynx during swallowing. The soft palate is an aponeurosis whose shape and position is altered, including the five paired muscles: the tensor palati, the levator palati, the palatoglossus, the palatopharyngeus, and the musculus uvulae. Now we could say that strictly the palatoglossus also belongs to the tongue and the palatopharyngeus also belongs to the pharynx and I'll clarify these a little as we go. More correctly, you may see the term tensor or levata veli palatini and the word veli just really means curtain. One can see that the competency of the soft palate against the posterior pharyngeal wall permits actions like blowing up a balloon or coughing without air escape through the nose and swallowing without regurgitation into the nose. If it's pushed down against the tongue, respiration can continue during sucking or chewing again without any risk of inhalation. So this is the basic design. And in coughing and sneezing, where there are pressure differentials between the nasopharynx and the oropharynx, the uvula assists in preventing the soft palate from being forced upwards and the tense soft palate then assists the tongue in directing the food down the lower pharynx prior to swallowing. So that's the basic sort of design. So firstly we've got to consider some of these uh, particular muscles. The first is the tensor pilate. Now it's a good idea to take a dried skull and look at the base of the skull. The tensor is a thin strip of muscle arising from a small but discrete area which is called the scaphoid fossa, at the upper end of the medial pterygoid plate. And it also arises, that's the tensor pilates, from part of the cartilaginous portion of the pharyngotympanic or eustachian tube, as I've discussed in another podcast, as well as the spine of the sphenoid. That is, there's a little bony origin to the front and back of this muscle, with a bit of cartilaginous origin between Um, As the palate moves, the eustachian tube is, as we've said before, equalised, hence explaining why chewing in a flight fixes the equilibration of air pressure around the eardrum. Now this flattish muscle converges towards the end of the pterygoid hamulus and it becomes tenderness here and around the origin of the buccinator it twists around at a complete right angle and it enters the pharynx and flattens out as an aponeurosis attached to the crest of the palatine bone over the palate. Its right angle is just as sharp. Uh, when we get to the lower limb, for example, is the obturator internus muscle, which we'll meet in, a, in another podcast next year. But almost the um, same twist, if you like, as that muscle exits the pelvis to get to the greater trochanter, it's a 90 degree angle. The Tensor pallati does the same thing. The postrolateral border of the tensor pallati muscle blends with the side wall of the pharynx, as many muscles do, but more posteriorly, it hangs down, forming part of the edge of the soft palate where the uvula makes up the uh, um, midline. Now, not surprisingly, in a cleft palate, which I'll discuss a little bit later, this muscle has no proper palatal insertion. And the uvula has a little musculus uvulae attached to the posterior nasal spine. But it's really largely uh, mucous glandular tissue. The tensor only really keeps an effective stable base of the hard palate with the other muscles capable of influencing its, its shape uh, as it is taught. So the second muscle in this group is the levator Pilates. That's a much more round mass of muscle, which arises from the quadrate area at the apex of the petrous temporal bone, just in front of the carotid canal, as well as from the adjacent medial aspect of the cartilaginous part of the pharyngotympanic tube. And the muscles inserted into the nasal surface of the palatine aponeurosis between the two heads of the palatopharyngeus, in order to understand this uh, Think of it first, I think, in the sagittal plane and then in the coronal plane. And these two muscles, these two levators, run forwards immediately so that they form a sort of V-sling that effectively elevates the palate, also pulling it backwards. It's just how one would design it to close off the nasopharynx during contraction. So that makes sense. They sling the palate. So it raises the palate whilst the tensor stiffens it, like pulling up a surfboard. And, uh, that results in the soft palate touching the posterior pharyngeal wall at an area the so-called passavance ridge which is at the level of the anterior arch of the atlas and that muscle you can see is a little different in its origin to the tensor palati, in that the levator palati descends behind the auditory tube and it arises inside the pharynx that is the free border of the superior constrictor so the levator palati is intrapharyngeal whereas the tensor is extrapharyngeal. The third muscle we've got is the palatoglossus and that's always I think a little confusing. I included here with a muscle arising from the under surface of the palatine aponeurosis and passing downwards to interdigitate with the styloglossus. It creates a raised palatoglossal fold in front of the tonsil. It's one of the tonsillar pillars the anterior pillar of the tonsillar forces and that area represents a junction between the mouth and the pharynx or the oropharynx where there's a crossover of really v3 and glossopharyngeal nerve supply the muscle the palatoglossus is a sphincter of the oropharyngeal isthmus raising the tongue and narrowing the transverse diameter of the isthmus so where are all of the glossal muscles innervated by the hypoglossal nerve except for the palatoglossus that's innervated by the pharyngeal plexus but if you think of the palatoglossus not as a glossal muscle elevating the tongue but as a depressor palati then you don't have to remember that little uh, piece of information about the hypoglossal nerve now this muscle the palatoglossus uh, to preempt is as i've said the only tongue muscle at least a muscle with the name glossus attached, which is not innervated by the twelfth nerve. I'm just reiterating this deliberately. So you might be asked in your exams, why is that? Just go through it again. You think of it, I think, as an elevator of the tongue, in which case it's just another useless fact to remember, or rather you might consider it as a depressor of the palate, uh, in which case uh, it is entirely logical that it would be innervated by the pharyngeal branch of the vagus. Got it? Now, it is, in effect, a small counterpart of the levator palati, but it's on the underside, or undersurface, of the soft palate upon neurosis, meeting its opposite number in the midline, and it runs through to meet with the muscles of the tongue posterolaterally, such as the styloglossus, and so it draws the soft palate inferiorly. It can approximate it to the tongue, and, as I said before, a good way to push along a bolus of food into the larynx or hypopharynx before you swallow it. The other muscle, which is the big muscle here, is the palatopharyngeus, or let's say the important muscle. That muscle is a little bit more complex and it arises from two heads, one fixed to bone and the other to the palatal poneurosis. These two heads embrace the insertion of the levator palati. the anterior head arising from the posterior border of the hard palate, and the posterior head arising further back from the upper aponeurosis. So the two heads sort of arch downwards over the lateral aspect of the aponeurosis just behind and lateral to the tonsil, where this muscle is the most internal of all the pharyngeal muscles, but forming a lateral, at least in the coronal plane, a lateral fold, the palatopharyngeal fold, or the posterior pillar of the forces, with the lowest part inserted into the posterior border of the thyroid lamina, so that it might, as last suggests in his book, better be named palato laryngeus. But because of this lamina connection, the posterior fibres can merge with a bit of the inferior constrictor muscle. The anterior head of this muscle, that bit that's fixed to the bone, elevates the larynx and the pharynx and bows the palate upwards like a concave shell the posterior head tends to depress the palate. So there's a kind of dual action here. And in very small print, the muscle is joined superiorly by the salpingopharyngeus and inferiorly by the stylopharyngeus. But that's really a fancy way of talking about the fusion of lateral and posterolateral pharyngeal muscles at the point which represents the interval between the middle and superior constrictors at about the level of the body and greater cornea or horns Of the hyoid bone. So, if we look at this muscle, a few of its fibres arising from the hard palate pass horizontally backwards with the superior constrictor to narrow the estinus, as I've already said. And in those with a cleft palate, for example, that area is very greatly hypertrophied in a sort of vain attempt to compensate for a posterior deficiency and an inability of the muscle to close off the oropharynx from the nasopharynx. It's naturally also rather large in those animals where there's a high laryngeal orifice, that is, where the larynx is virtually arising in the nasopharynx. And these are animals that can swallow and breathe simultaneously. Can you think of such an animal that can swallow and breathe at the same time? Well, a good example is a rat, uh, and as well as other keen-scented animals, so that an intranarial larynx is supported by the stylopharyngeus and the salpingopharyngeus muscles, both of which uh, get more developed in this circumstance. The palatopharyngeus sphincter then effectively clasps the larynx. Now the main mass of the muscle, that's the palatopharyngeus, depresses the palate onto the posterior part of the tongue, and it prevents the soft palate from being forced into the nasopharynx when blowing forcefully through the mouth against a resistance. The pacinence ridge, that's the palatopharyngeal sphincter which we've spoken about, in humans has then been kind of pulled downwards, uh, at least in evolution. Now, the blood supply of the soft palate includes the lesser palatine branches, of course, of the maxillary artery, the ascending palatine branch of the facial artery, and palatine branches of the ascending pharyngeal artery, and there's a lot of free anastomosis there. The venous blood drains laterally through the pharyngeal wall into the pharyngeal as well as the pterygoid plexi. The lymphatics drain into the retropharyngeal and deep cervical lymph nodes. The muscles of the soft palate are all supplied, as we've said, by the pharyngeal branch of the vagus, except for the tensor pilates, um, if you can recall, the tensors there are supplied by a branch from the medial pterygoid nerve, which is part of V3. And that's run through the otic ganglion. Obviously, it doesn't synapse there, just uses it to supply the tensors tensor palati and the other tensor, tensor tympani. The plexus fibers to the palate are derived from the nucleus ambiguus, of course, via the cranial accessory with secretomotor, so-called pseudomotor fibres, to the palatal glands running with the lesser palatine nerves, but they're derived from the cell bodies and the pterygopalatine ganglion, one of the parasympathetic ganglia. And they, of course, come from the superior salivatory nucleus in the parasympathetic nervous system, but they make their way to the ganglion via their preganglionic nerve, which is the greater petrosal nerve. And if you want to review that area, just go back to my podcast on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. Somatically, the sensation of the soft palate is, of course, V2, with a bit of overlap of the glossopharyngeal nerve in the lateral pharynx. The V2 is the paired lesser palatine nerves here at this level, the taste fibres from the greater petrosal nerve, the cell bodies of which are in the geniculate ganglion, with central parts in the nucleus of the tractus solitarius or the so-called gustatory nucleus. And remember that the greater petrosal nerve carries a few sensate fibres, also running with the lesser palatine nerve to the intratonsillar cleft, and their cell bodies also reside in the geniculate ganglion. There are a couple of additions. Uh, we need to mention the palatine tonsil. The bed of the palatine tonsil is the superior constrictor muscle, overlain with a few of the fibres of the palato pharyngeus The ninth nerve crosses the lower part of this bed, passing under the lower border of the constrictor. One thinks of the tonsil, I think, with borders, poles and surfaces. The anterior and posterior borders lie adjacent to the palatoglossal and the palatopharyngeal folds, respectively, The upper pole extends to and may even infiltrate the soft palate, and the lower pole reaches the dorsum of the tongue. Opening on the medial surface are about 20 tonsillar crypts, with a large one in the upper pole, the intratonsillar cleft, which is the remnant of the second pharyngeal cleft. The lateral tonsillar surface forms the tonsillar capsule, which is an extension of the pharyngobasilar fascia so that a peritonsillar abscess, a quinsy is then extracapsular. The superior constrictor separates this surface from the facial artery and its relevant branch, the ascending palatine, and the tonsillar. You've got to go check, I think, the relevant podcast on the arterial supply of the head and neck. The tonsil is separated from the uvula by a mucosal semilunar fold, extending from the palatopharyngeal arch, to the upper tonsillar pole, and in foetal life there's a similar fold running from the palatoglossal arch to the lower pole, which becomes invaded by tonsillar tissue and which therefore effectively disappears. Waldia's ring refers then to the congregation of the palatine, lingual, pharyngeal and tubal, so-called gerlax tonsil, uh, as the tonsils collectively. Now, the blood supply of the tonsil is therefore complex. The main arterial supply is the tonsillar branch of the facial artery, which arches over the styloglossus and pierces the superior constrictor. And there are smaller contributions from the lingual, the ascending pharyngeal, and the ascending palatine arteries. So that's sometimes a question in the exam. What's the blood supply of the tonsil? And it should be noted that the internal carotid artery is just posterolateral. The veins form a plexus around the capsule and they pierce the superior constrictor to drain into the pharyngeal plexus. And there's often a large vein in the tonsillar bed, the so-called external palatine vein, often called the paratonsillar vein in some books, and that's the usual culprit in a post-tonsillectomy bleed. The lymphatic drainage is the deep cervical nodes, but particularly the so-called jugulodigastric node, which is the harbinger of a tonsillar carcinoma. The nerve supply is the tonsillar branch of the glossopharyngeal as well as the lesser palatine nerves. Most of the carcinomas develop in the tonsillolingual sulcus, which separates the tonsil from the tongue inferiorly. The tonsil and the tonsillar fossa are supplied, just to reiterate, by branches of the external carotid artery, including the lingual, facial, ascending pharyngeal, and internal uh, maxillary arteries, if you want to think of them in that way. The upper part is supplied by the descending palatine artery, a branch of the maxillary artery, and the middle and inferior branches of the ascending pharyngeal artery. The middle part is supplied typically by the tonsillar branch of the facial artery and the lower part is supplied by an ascending palatine arterial branch of the facial artery and the dorsal lingual branch of the lingual artery. So it's quite complicated. On the venous side, as I've said, the veins drain the tonsillar fossa into the paratonsillar vein and then into the pharyngeal venous plexus. And that drains through the facial vein into the internal jugular. The lymphatics, as we've said, pierce the superior constrictor and they drain to the upper deep cervical nodes, principally that jugulodigastric lymph node, which is located below the angle of the mandible. Now in tonsillectomy, this commences at the margins of the arches, typically starting at the upper pole by a kind of fine dissection, keeping close to the capsule as one works downwards. Arterial haemorrhage is actually uncommon and it only occurs if the bed is penetrated with most of the bleeding being venous from the base of the tonsil and from the the, paratonsillar vein in the bed as we've said. And the arteries lie on the outer side of the superior constrictor. The ninth nerve is near the lower border of the superior constrictor and sometimes the small veins can unite to form a single larger vein which can enter the facial vein, and that can be a source of troublesome bleeding. Um, The other area that we can consider, I think, in this region is perhaps some brief notes on cleft palate. I'm going to do uh, later on um, uh, some embryology podcasts, which are of relevance, including embryology of the head and neck. But briefly, if we're going to talk about cleft palate, we've got to talk about a little bit of facial embryology and a little bit <clears throat> of distorted anatomy. We need to start, at least, in that way. The nasal cavities and the oral cavity are formed from the primitive stomodeum, which is really a simple ectodermal pit separated from the mesoderm. Now, to get to our area, because, as I said, I'll create some head and neck embryology podcasts The mesoderm of the maxillary processes fuses with a frontonasal process, separating the brain from the stomata and resulting in a shelf-like extension lateral to the tongue, which becomes the palatal process. And in this space, the whole area is excavated between the frontonasal and maxillary processes as the nasal cavities, only separated then by the nasal septum. All of this fuses superiorly with the frontonasal process the maxilla and the nasal septum, to form the definitive palate. And that means that above and in front, the area has a V1 nerve supply and blood supply, which is ophthalmic, and behind and below, it's all V2. And the fusion here with the third pharyngeal arch allows the area to have that abutting glossopharyngeal nerve supply, which is why it works that way. Now, a cleft palate, which occurs about one every 2,500 births, represents a failure of the proper formation or fusion of these palatal processes, and that results in a variable cleft palate, which can range from a bifid uvula to a complete anteroposterior defect on one or both sides. These are essentially paramedian defects in the frontonasal process, and they pass forward lateral to the incisor teeth, to become continuous with a cleft lip, a so-called hair lip which occurs about one per thousand births, and that's also present in that circumstance. But because the incisive part of the maxilla, the premaxilla, forms separately, that explains why this off-midline split occurs and why a bilateral cleft palate has a separate central piece. Cleft palate clearly interferes with sucking, blowing and swallowing with nasal regurgitation and with the separation of the oral and nasal elements that affect all things. So there's such a separation in speech pattern with a nasal escape quality to the voice. This is the thing that we all recognise. And this cannot be compensated, obviously, by the hypertrophy of the horizontal fibres of the palatopharyngeus and of the superior constrictor muscle. Uh, In cleft lip or hair lip, which is an old term we don't really use, Uh, The cleft runs down from the nostril, laterally, with the median part of the lip derived from the opposite maxillary process. So if it's bilateral, the central skin is derived from the frontonasal processes. The cleft units form uh, from before backwards, uh, uh, which really explains the posterior defect, at least in mild form, out to a complete anterior cleft, as I've described and it also explains irregularities of the incisor and canine teeth which accompany it. If the lateral nasal and maxillary processes don't fuse, you can actually get a rare lateral facial cleft, and that's formed along the line of the nasolacrimal duct. The cleft lip repair is typically performed early at around about 3-6 to months by a simple sort of rotation or advancement flap. The cleft palate is left until about 12 months or so, before speech development, usually with a Z-plasty style of palatal muscle realignment, an plasty as it's called. And in some cases, because of the defect at five to seven, a palatal expansion can be required at that, at that age and create space for the permanent teeth with a later bone graft gradually screw-widening the palate transversely at the time the permanent teeth are beginning to develop. So there are secondary procedures that may need to be done later on. The palate may have been left partially open sometimes to permit growth and uh, then subsequently one needs to put in an alveolar bone graft uh, to lead to a a sort of complete dental arch uh, so that the permanent teeth can erupt onto something and any fistulae between the gum and the nose at that time would then be closed over. So that's sometimes not perfect also, and that can require later on orthodontic treatment as a sort of first phase during the mixed dentition phase when the milk teeth are lost, sort of tooth alignment, and then sometimes a phase two orthodontics, usually between about 14 to 18 years of age, where the teeth are then levelled and aligned again, and missing teeth can now be replaced and refashioned into the dental arch as needed. If there's severe maxillary retrusion, that is, the maxilla lies well behind the mandible, then at skeletal maturity, a kind of Lefort 1 orthognathic um, advancement, osteotomy needs to be performed, usually at around about 18 years of age. So these are the additional secondary dental procedures which may be required. We're then going to get on to the anatomy of the tongue the root of the tongue contains the muscles connecting it to the hyoid and the mandible as well as the nerves and vessels uh, of its supply <coughs> the tongue extends to the epiglottis and is separated into a palatine and a pharyngeal part by a V-shaped sulcus terminalis marked by the pit of the foramen cecum The mucosa of the palatine part is roughened by the papillae and is more smooth posteriorly with the small lymphoid accumulations, the lingual tonsil. The continuation posteriorly is as the medial and lateral glossoepiglottic folds, we'll consider them when we talk in a uh, couple of podcasts on on the larynx, and around the valleculae with the central epiglottis. The main parts of the tongue for classification in a carcinoma, for example, uh, are the dorsum, the tip, the inferior surface, and the root, so we need to talk about the tongue anatomically in that way. The anterior two-thirds is separated, as I've said, from the posterior third, forming the anterior oropharynx. The inferior projection, as we've said before, is the frenulum. Now in the tongue there are 7 to 12 valate papillae which are located immediately anterior to the sulcus terminalis and these are like short fat cylinders surrounded by a deep trench. Ducts of the so-called von Ebner's glands which are lingual salivary glands empty into them. The fungiform papillae are smaller and they're more numerous and they're bright red spots and these are uh, taste buds. The filiform papillae are numerous and minute, covering the palatine surface, and they're deployed in parallel rows against the sorcus. And all of these, except the phyloform papillae, are associated with taste buds. So these are sweet, sour, bitter, salt, and now umami. The most abundant phyloform papillae give the tongue its studded, keratinized appearance, and are responsible largely for the sensation of touch. Even though they're anterior to the sulcus, the circumvallate papillae are innervated by the glossopharyngeal nerve, with the rest of the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, of course, as we know, innervated by the chorda tympani from the seventh nerve through or via the lingual nerve distribution. The phyloform part is the non-slip, velvety part for moving a food bolus. Now, I want to talk about the tongue musculature, and these are divided into extrinsic and intrinsic. The tongue has a midline fibrous septum, which divides the organ into symmetrical halves so that these include the superior and inferior longitudinal, the transverse and the vertical. The extrinsic muscles all have glossus in their name, and they include the geneoglossus, which is the bulk of the tongue substance, the hyoglossus, the styloglossus, the palatoglossus. And from the names, we can see that these all have bony attachments to the hyoid bone, the hard palate, and the styloid process. The geneoglossus has a bony origin, hyoid and mandibular. And last actually suggests that a better term would have been uh, the rather the mouthful geneohyoglossus as a measure of its attachments. Now, uh, let's go over these in a little bit more detail. Now, geneoglossus arises from the superior mental spine, the genial tubercle, and some insertion to the hyoid, but largely as the bulk of the tongue into the mucosa. The posterior part of the tongue has a hyoid attachment with the geneoglossus, like the hyoglossus, entering the tongue from below as a paramedian muscle. The muscle depresses the bulk of the median aspect of the tongue, the hyoglossus, the lateral part. And the posterior fibres help protrude the tongue, as does the geneohyoid, which seems a little counterintuitive. And the anterior fibres actually retract the tip, so there's a kind of dual action of this geneoglossus. The hyoglossus arises from the length of the greater cornua of the hyoid bone, which is bear with me and the part of the body of the hyoid lateral to the genealhyoid, and it's a thin rectangular sheet of muscle running upwards and forwards at right angles to the fibres of the um, styloglossus, or the mylohyoid for that matter, with an interdigitation at its lateral and upper border with the styloglossus. The anterior and the posterior borders of hyoglossus, which inserts into the side of the tongue, are free borders, of course, running on it is the lingual nerve and the submandibular ganglion, as we've gone through, as well as the submandibular duct and below the hypoglossal nerve. And deep to it is the glossopharyngeal nerve, the stylohyoid ligament, and the lingual artery. From above downwards, those are the structures. So the hyoglossus effectively is a very great and important landmark. The other muscle is the styloglossus. This arises from the lower part or the front of the styloid process, as well as the upper part of the stylohyoid ligament, and the muscle passes forwards below the superior constrictor and is inserted into the side of the tongue, interdigitating with the upper part of the hyoglossus. At a deeper plane, in line with that is parallel with the lower border, is the glossopharyngeal nerve. The styloglossus and the palatoglossus enter the lateral part of the tongue, but from above, so that the reverse, uh, if you like, of the geneoglossus and the hyoglossus, which are coming to the tongue from below. The styloglossus runs along the lateral anterior tongue margin, and it along with the palatoglossus, which is virtually contiguous with the transverse intrinsic muscles of the tongue, elevates the tongue posteriorly with the styloglossus as it contracts, retracting, the back and the sides of the tongue. The job of the palatoglossus is different. It pulls the palate down, as I've said before, onto the tongue, and as i said, perhaps better thought of as a depressor palati than as an extrinsic or true extrinsic um, tongue muscle. And that muscle actually narrows the isthmus of the forces. The palatoglossus, which we briefly met before, comes down from the undersurface of the palatine aponeurosis, to the side of the tongue, forming the palatoglossal arch, that division between the mouth and the pharynx. And I'm reiterating myself so that this can be reinforced. The tongue is supplied by the lingual artery, which runs at a deep level beneath the hyoglossus, where it gives off dorsal lingual branches posteriorly. Anteriorly, it gives off a sublingual branch, which supplies part of the floor of the mouth and there's an anastomosis with the tonsillar branch of the facial artery and the ascending pharyngeal artery. There's no real arterial crossover because of the tongue septum. There's a deep lingual vein, and that's superficial to the hyoglossus, which has a sublingual tributary and which contributes around the hypoglossal nerve as a sort of venae comitans joining the lingual or sometimes the facial nerve and then very occasionally, the internal jugular vein directly. The lymphatics draining the tongue can drain bilaterally, with the tip of the tongue typically draining to the submental lymph nodes and the anterior tongue to the submandibular lymph nodes, and the posterior part, that's the anterior part of the floor of the mouth and the submandibular region, draining the territory of the facial artery, the lips and the cheek, the posterior floor of the mouth, and that goes to the deep cervical nodes. The submental nodes typically receive lymph from the same territory that's supplied by the submental artery. As regards the nerve supply, of course, all the extrinsic and intrinsic muscles of the tongue are supplied by the hypoglossal nerve, except, as we've said, the palatoglossus. The motor cell bodies here are in the hypoglossal nucleus, below the hypoglossal trigone, in the floor of the fourth ventricle. The lingual nerve most likely carries tongue, proprioceptive fibres. The sensory supply corresponds to the three pharyngeal uh, uh, arches, the oral, the presulcal, or anterior two-thirds, but not the valate papillae, are innervated by the lingual nerve, and these have their cell bodies in the trigeminal ganglion, with a quarter tympani component, which has its cell bodies in the genicular ganglion. And as we recall from AHM4, the uh, parasympathetic nervous system of the head and neck, the nucleus is first the superior salivatory nucleus and this is relayed in the of tympani along the lingual nerve to the submandibular ganglion. By contrast, the posterior third of the tongue and the presulcal area of the valate papillae is innervated by the glossopharyngeal nerve and these are fibres of common sensibility plus taste with their cell bodies in the glossopharyngeal ganglia and the parasympathetic pseudomotor fibres from the lingual ganglia uh, through a visceral relay. There's a small area of mucosa near the anterior velicula, which is supplied by the internal laryngeal nerve, which has its cell bodies in the inferior vagal ganglion. And that arrangement with the valate papillae, where they've moved forward but are still innervated by the glossopharyngeal nerve, is explained by that forward migration of some of the epithelium, from a post-salsal region forwards during development in front of the sulcus and the sympathetic fibers of course travel with the lingual artery from the external carotid plexus and their cell bodies are part of the superior cervical ganglion. Now I've glossed over this but the arrangement is all developmental. In brief the tongue musculature is formed from the suboccipital myotomes migrating forwards and carrying the nerve supply, which is the hypoglossal nerve. And because of this, the ventral migration, um, it explains really the relationship of the hypoglossal nerve to the internal carotid artery and the external carotid artery and the internal jugular vein, the hypoglossal nerve running in front of the carotid bifurcation. And it also explains that C1 connection with the hypoglossal nerve and the ansa cervicalis supply, of both the thyroid and the infrahyoid muscle and the geneohyoid and extrinsic tongue muscle. As this part of the tongue comes from the first, third and fourth arches there are three sensory nerves in its supply. The pre-sulcal mucosa is from the tuberculum impar and the lateral lingual swellings are part of the first arch so these are supplied by the lingual and the chorda tympani. The posterior sulcal part is from the midline hypobranchial eminence of the third arch. So that's innervated by the glossopharyngeal. And there's a small contribution from the fourth arch, as I've mentioned before. That's actually the internal laryngeal branch uh, of the vagus. And there's no second arch tissue, as this is overgrown by the third arch tissue. So this area explains how the first, third and fourth arches and their innervation Innovate this particular region. The thyroid grows down from the connection between the tuberculum impar and this hypobranchial eminence, which is the area superiorly indicated by the foramen cecum. So that explains why a thyroglossal cyst or a thyroglossal duct comes down through the foramen cecum. Now, I'll create, as I've said, an embryology of the Head and Neck podcast, but for now, we can remember a few things of interest as bullet points Mesodermal condensations form in the primitive pharynx as the branchial arches. These now called pharyngeal arches support the pharynx. The most cranial is the mandibular arch, with each arch separated by a pharyngeal or branchial pouch. The internal grooves between the arches are the branchial arches. The external or out part grooves are called the branchial clefts. And as the fourth and fifth pouches have a common opening, there are four pouches which separates six arches. And put simply, the first arch forms the mandible and the maxilla. That begins as Meckel's cartilage, which dorsally produces the incus and the malleus, as well as the anterior ligament of the malleus and the sphenomandibular ligament. The mesodermal derivatives here are the muscles of mastication, the masseter, the temporalis, the lateral and medial pterygoids, the mylohyoid and the anterior belly of digastric, we've mentioned this in another podcast, as well as the two tensor muscles which we mentioned earlier, the tensor tympani and tensor pilates. And that explains the nerve supply, namely the mandibular nerve, and the artery persists, of course, as the maxillary artery, that's uh, uh, part of the first aortic arch. So we've done that first arch, which is the mandible and maxilla, the second arch, of course, forms the body and lesser cornua of the hyoid bone, and the nerve here is the seventh nerve, the artery, is the facial artery. And that also brings, as I've said, the taste fibres to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue via the corda tympani. Now, that arrangement might seem a bit strange. Uh, within animal studies, the are considered a kind of pre-traumatic branch of the second arch nerve, the word really means pre-cleft branch, where the sensory nerves in gilled animals, for example, divide so that the tissue both in front of as well as behind the arch is then the nerve supply. And that means that the quarter, the pre-traumatic branch of the second arch nerve, the facial nerve, supplies some first arch tissue, so it can run in front and behind. And derivatives here of supply, for example, mean that that nerve innervates the stapes. And that's why there's a little bit of the inner ear is innervated forwards by the facial nerve. And the styloid process as well, the stylohyoid ligament, the lesser horn and body of the hyoid bone. So this kind of overlap area explains why the nerves uh, innervate in that way. So the muscles here are the muscles, obviously, of facial expression. They include the buccinator and the platysma and the starpedius, the stylohyoid and the posterior belly of digastric, As well as the occipitalis and the posterior auricular musculature, if they're formed at all. And that's explained by the derivative running from the stapes and the styloid process medially and inferiorly towards the lesser horn of the hyoid bone and towards the central body of the hyoid bone. So, this is, I'm just going through the basics. We'll go through it in greater detail in an embryology podcast, but the basics of these arches. The third arch forms, of course, the rest of the body of the hyoid bone and the greater cornea. And here, skeletal derivatives are the greater horn, the caudal part of the body of the hyoid bone. The muscular derivatives here includes only, of course, the stylopharyngeus muscle. And the nerve of the third arch is the glossopharyngeal nerve, and that's, of course, the muscle is its only muscle. The fourth, fifth, and sixth arches go into the cartilages of the larynx and here, skeletal derivatives include the thyroid, the cricoid, the epiglottis and arytenoid. In other words, the laryngeal skeleton. And the muscular derivatives are then the intrinsic muscles of the larynx. Uh, muscles of the pharynx and the levator palati, which are all supplied by the laryngeal and pharyngeal branches of the vagus. The difference in innervation arises because part is derived from the embryonic pharynx, whereas the muscle originates from the occipital somite mesoderm adjacent to the cervical part that is the origin of the infrahyoid muscles. And that explains, as I've said, the association between the 12th nerve and the ansa cervicalis. The muscles from the tongue to the sternum are innervated by 12 and the nerves of these somites, that is the first three cervical nerves, so quite separate from the pharyngeal musculature. Of course, each arch has an allocated artery and cranial nerve, or part thereof. Now, hopefully that clarifies some of the complex embryology of this region, but I'll reiterate that, as I've said in another podcast, and hopefully uh, when we get up and running with an audiovisual channel via a customised video. We've got a little extra here on the tongue and that is of course its intrinsic musculature and structure. The actual substance of the tongue is comprised of fibres of striated muscle which effectively lies in three discrete planes all at right angles to each other and that area is a little glossed over usually but it consists of a superior longitudinal muscle which is the dorsal of the tongue and that curls the tip up and rolls it backwards there's equally an inferior longitudinal muscle or muscles which are lateral to the genioglossus on the lateral undersurface of the tongue, and that curls the tip downwards and acts with the superior muscle to widen the tongue substance and retract it. The transverse muscle fibres are under the superior longitudinal muscle, and these run from the septum in the midline to the most vertical fibres laterally of the genioglossus and the hyoglossus, and they intermingle with the vertical intrinsic muscles and if they contract we can see how the height of the tongue increases and the viscous narrows. Now the vertical muscle fibers run from the dorsum inferiorly and laterally and they flatten the tongue and tend to roll up the edges. If they act with the transverse muscles the length of the tongue increases and it's actually protruded. The movements obviously are more, much more complicated and involved as it is in swallowing or sucking or speaking or chewing, sort of chewing toiletry, licking the lips and in bolus prehension of food. These intrinsic muscles, in, uh, in the way I've described them, uh, alter the tongue shape whilst the extrinsics stabilise it and affect its position. So for example in early swallowing the contraction of vertical fibres heaps up the sides of the tongue. Throughout all of these movements, of course, the tongue volume is constant so that these synergistic contractions change its shape principally. The big extrinsics function separately, with geneoglossus protracting, styloglossus retracting upwards, and higher pulling the sides of the tongue down uh, like a rolled shade. The floor of the mouth, of course, as we recall, is the mylohyoid which allows raising and lowering of the floor and elongation and shortening of the tongue base. And that mechanism is essential in swallowing. Vertical intrinsic contraction, heaped up tongue, contracts the palate and traps the food bolus. Contraction then of the mylohyoid compresses the tongue against the hard palate. The verticals then relax from before backwards, which then pushes the bolus backwards. Uh, The only other area that I said that I would cover from an earlier podcast um, uh, on osteology of the skull is the mandible. Um, I think that it's relevant to understand the anatomy of a bit of this because often the general surgical uh, resident may need to describe fractures of the mandible, at least over the phone. So we can separate those into the body and the ramai, and these of course uh, meet at the angle. The body of the mandible has two discrete borders, the superior alveolar and the inferior basal. The body, of course, has the symphysis and then uh, laterally uh, the mental foramen below the second premolar and then vertically projected rami with a head which articulates with the temporomandibular joint and neck uh, where there is a lateral pterygoid attachment. And then beyond that in front is a coronoid process for attachment of the temporalis insertion. The inner surface of the mandible is marked by the mandibular foramen, the inferior alveolar neurovascular bundle, and the mylohyoid line. And the body gives attachment on its external surface to the mentalis, the buccinator, the platysma, the depressor labii inferioris, and the depressor oris. On its internal surface, to the geneoglossus, the geniohyoid the mylohyoid and the digastric. The rami give attachment to the temporalis, but also, as we've said, on the external surface to the masseter, on the internal surface to the medial pterygoid and part of the lateral pterygoid. And as I've said before, the attachment on the outside of the masseter looks very much like the attachment on the inside of the medial pterygoid. Mandibular fractures like those of the pelvic ring don't in general occur in isolation, and one must think of the region as a ring. A fractured neck, for example, is often accompanied by a contralateral body fracture. A fracture of the coronoid process is uncommon and usually isolated or singular. Fractures of the neck of the mandible are often transverse, and they may be accompanied by a dislocation of the temporomandibular joint, Fractures of the angle are usually oblique and they can involve the alveolus or the third molar. And Fractures of the body frequently pass through the canine teeth. There have been uh, some uh, newer proposed classifications. Uh, Briefly, outside of nasal fracture, uh, the mandibular fracture is the commonest facial fracture. Uh, The classifications have depended upon location, type, involvement of the dentition, displacement and favorability, I, I think, of treatment. I think, uh, for those interested, uh, there is the Dingman and Natvig horizontal and vertical favourable or unfavourable classification. There's a classification by Kelly and Harrigan, depending on whether it's in the symphysis body, angle, ramus, condylar process or coronoid. There's one specifically for condylar fractures by Linda and Hollander. There's one based on the location and character by Kabakov and Malashev. The Kruger and Shilly types of fractures look at incomplete, greenstick-complete fractures, etc., particularly those in the edentulous jaw. The Hill and Watson condylar fractures and subcondylar fracture classification there's a pogrel and cabin classification according to the site of injury. Again, ramus angle, body of fract- uh, body, uh, symphysis and parasymphysis, a Kazanidjian and converse, uh, depending on the degree and effect of dentition. The newer Gratz classification, which is an alphanumeric tnm style classification. There's the WHO, the International Classification the mandible, the alveolar margin, the body, the processus articularis, and so on. The Pancotroi and Robusta classification, which has eight alphanumeric categories, categorizing the line of the fracture, the involved teeth, whether teeth are absent, combined injuries. A Shetty classification, which has different, six different injury criteria, um, uh, which can be looked at. And then there's an etiologic classification, depending on whether these are direct blows, indirect blows, excessive muscle contractions, and so on. So take your pick for those who are interested in this kind of area. They can look up some of those that I've mentioned and additions. The next area we're going to talk about in the next podcast is going to be the anatomy of the pharynx, and then following that will be the anatomy of the larynx and ear, and then we're complete in this series.